Got your Bibles. This morning we are going to start a new series on the book of 1 John. Uh, 1 John. So if you want to turn there, it's in the back of your Bible. If you aren't familiar with your Bible, you can open it up to a table of contents. It'll tell you where it is. Or you can kind of open up to the middle and head right. You'll make your way through the Gospels, through Acts, through some different books. You'll come up on Hebrews. You can slow down in Hebrews, make your way through First and Second Peter, and you'll come to First John. And that's where we're going to be this morning, and that's where we're going to be for the next several weeks, maybe a couple of months. We're going to dedicate ourselves uh, to reading and to teaching uh, the book of First John. And so this morning, I just really want to set the series up. I just want to get our minds and our hearts uh, directed at this letter, and I want to do that by showing a few reasons why we're actually going to take the time that we take in the next few weeks to teach through 1 John. And, And in that, I want to even talk a little bit in the beginning about why we take the time that we take on Sunday morning to do what we do. So we're going to spend some time looking at 1 John, and I want to show us a few reasons why we're going to dedicate our time to actually doing this. So we'll start with the big E on the eye chart. We won't We won't bypass and and assume too much. The reason that we are studying the book of 1 John is because it's part of the Bible. It's it's part of Scripture. And the Bible actually says of itself that all of Scripture, all of the Bible, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete. And equipped for every good work. So we dedicate the bulk of our time when we gather together here on Sunday morning to read from and to teach from God's word because we believe that God's word is his very word breathed out to to help transform us and to equip us and, and to help move us forward to be who he has called us to be and to do what he has called us to do. That's why we're taking the time to to, to look at first John in particular because it's part of the Bible. It, it's part of God's word. And we believe that God's word is his greatest revelation about who he is. We believe that God's word is his fullest revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, and what it means to know him and be transformed by him and be equipped to tell other people about him. So that's why we take the time that we take on Sunday morning to read and to study God's word, because we believe that it is the principal tool for the equipping and the training of God's people. And so when we gather together on Sunday morning, I don't want you to fall into a rut of just habitually sitting and listening, wandering off in your mind, and then coming back, and then leaving, and then coming back the next week to just sit and to listen. I want you to be aware of why we do what we do. That God actually intentionally not only gave us his word, but he gave gifts to his church to teach his word so that all of God's people could be equipped to do what God has called them to do. And so when we come together and when we come to this time together and someone is reading God's word or teaching God's word, I don't want you to sit passively by, but sit and listen in an active way. I want you to anticipate that as God's word is read and taught, God is at work through his spirit using his word to help build you up, to strengthen you, to equip you, at times to correct you, to encourage you. This is what we're doing here. We're training. This is a, this is a, this is a gym, in lack of a, for lack of a better term where God's word is training us not to have show muscles. You know, show muscles, all all show and no go. Guys are all puffed up and big but can't lift more than a six-year-old. They're just all puffy. This is not time for me just to come and, and, and talk and to give you information so that you can be big and puffy. This is functional training in God's word. He's equipping you to go do what he's called you to do and be who he's called you to be. 
So that as you are transformed by his word and your character is cultivated to reflect more of his son, you can tell other people about him. That's why we gather here and do this. That's why we dedicate the bulk of our time on Sunday morning to the reading and teaching of God's word. It's training and it's equipping. And we believe that God's word can do what nothing else can do to help cultivate the soul of God's people. So first and foremost, we're doing it because it's part of the Bible. That's why we're going to take our time to look at 1 John. And we're going to trust that God's spirit, as we read and teach God's word, will do the very thing that it's promised. And it will correct us and it will train us and it will encourage us and it will help equip us. The second reason why, though, we're going to actually take the time the next few weeks, maybe a couple of months, to go through 1 John, is that this particular letter is amazingly pastoral. It's amazingly pastoral. Oftentimes, there are particular letters in the Bible that are are a little bit more argumentative, a little more polemical. There's a problem, and there's a letter written to address those who are causing a problem and to unpack a problem. But though there's a problem going on in this particular church, Though, as we'll see when we read through the letter, there are particular men who have been a part of this church, who had confessed the same faith as the followers of Christ in this church, but had decided that the testimony about Jesus was not not true. In particular, they began to say that Jesus wasn't fully God, and some began to say that Jesus wasn't fully man. The testimony that the apostles had given about who Jesus really was no longer rang true to these men, and they had left the church, but they're now coming back in, trying to teach the people of this church things that weren't true about Christ. And so John, being a a good pastor who loved these people, sought to protect these people from these untruths. And we'll learn more about him as we read the book. He won't take too much time this morning. But John actually was talking to these people, trying to help protect his church. And he talked about false prophets that were going out and and teaching them things that weren't true. You'll see in chapter 2, he actually calls them antichrists. They're teaching things that are contrary to Jesus. They're antichrists. That's what that word actually means. He has strong words, not so much in an argument against these people, but strong words as a pastor to help encourage and equip his people that he loved to help, to help them discern and understand truth and error. It's deeply pastoral, and he wants to protect his people from error. He wants to protect his people from things that are not true. He wants to protect his people from falling prey to very seductive mistruths that could easily lead them astray. Another reason why it's I love it, and it's deeply pastoral. He doesn't just want to protect his people. He wants to actually reinforce their faith. He wants to actually strengthen their faith. He wants to take what's sure and what's solid in them that they have received from him, that they have placed their faith in and believed, and he wants to help reinforce it. Because as these false truths come in, their, their circumstances and their certainty can get a little shaky. I was thinking about this this week, and I was reminded of, of a good friend of mine, my, my oldest friend, who is in the commercial uh, construction business, and he's always wanted to be in the commercial construction business. Ever since we were 13 or 14, and I know this is what he's wanted to do. I was telling the first service, he was the guy that when we were young, used to videotape episodes of this old house. And that's what he recorded, and he would just sit and watch it. He's just that guy. I mean, I, I need duct tape and super glue, and beyond that, I can't do it. But he's always wanted to be the guy in construction and building. And from the time we were in high school, he just gave his time to do it. He worked in trenches laying pipes and worked his way up to surveying ground. And by the time we were in our early 20s, he worked his way up to being an assistant on job sites. So he was able to hang out in the trailer. And I'll never forget when we met together in a mutual city in Memphis um, to spend the weekend together and just hang out. Uh, we were riding around town and he was so excited about all that he had learned and all that he was doing. 
Every time we passed a parking garage or a building or a new structure, he was telling me what was going on and what they were doing. And just his mind was blown and he was so excited. And I was just like, what in the world, man? That is so foreign to me. But he was loving it. And so I finally said, listen, help me understand this then. They just poured 10 to 15 feet of concrete, 10 feet deep on that building. Why in the world are there all these metal rods going in and out of it? Well, there was this patchwork of these metal rods that laid over this concrete at different levels like a checkerboard, and they just kept pouring more concrete on it, and these rods kept poking out. And he told me, you know, concrete being one of the strongest substances that we can think of when we think about building, he said it's unbelievably secure in, in times of stability. But when the ground around it becomes a little bit instable, concrete becomes amazingly fragile. And so builders have learned to lay these patchworks of rebar, metal, in the concrete when they pour it to help reinforce the concrete so that when the ground shifts or the layers of silt and the dirt begin to move or, or high winds on some of these tall structures begin to blow, that rebar helps reinforce the concrete as it gets shifted. And I was thinking about that a lot this week when I was reading this letter and praying about this letter is that we're, we're not as different from that concrete as we like to think, although I don't think you think about yourself being like concrete very much. So let me show you what I mean. Like that concrete, we, we're often very, very stable in times of security. When things are kind of secure around us, seas are kind of level, life's kind of smooth, we tend to be amazingly secure and stable people. But when the ground starts to shift a little bit, when instability gets introduced into our life, we tend to become amazingly fragile. And what we need is reinforcement. And this is what John is doing for this church as the ground around them has become unstable. As people that they'd known and loved and trusted have come back and are now declaring to them something that is contrary to that which they have placed their life in, their hope in, their trust in, their faith in. As these men have, have taught false truths about Christ, their ground has become unstable. And John doesn't want them to be fragile. And he wants to reinforce them with the truth that they have first confessed. And in fact, as we read through 1 John, four times he tells us why he's writing the letter. What his pastoral aim and intent is in reinforcing the believers. Let me, let me read them to you just to kind of give you a preview of where we're going. In chapter 2, verse 1, John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So his intention in what he's writing, and as he's writing this letter, one of his intentions and motivations is to help reinforce their understanding of the gospel that would compel them towards a holiness, towards a transformed life that would reflect the character of Christ. Holiness is one of his aims and intents in writing this letter. He wants to reinforce the, the transforming power of the gospel in the life of this church. In chapter 2, verse 26, if you keep going down, John says this. He says, I write these things to you. This is why he's writing about those who are trying to deceive you. So he's writing something in this letter to help the people of God discern truth from error. There are people who are trying to deceive them, and he's writing this letter and saying what he's going to say to help reinforce the, the truth of the gospel for the church that they could discern truth from error. He wants them to be discerning people who are stable and solid in the truthfulness of the gospel. That's one of the things we're going to see when we, when we study this particular letter. If you flip over to chapter 5, verse 13, John says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Here's why. That you may know that you have eternal life. 
assurance. There's a first thing that begins to give way when instability shows up in our life. If you're really honest with yourself, it's assurance. Doubt begins to creep in. As cracks show up and the instability arises, doubt seeps into those cracks. And the lights go off at night and you lay your head down and nobody's talking. It's just you and your voice inside your head and your soul. Doubt begins to creep in. So what John wants for God's people is holiness, is maturity, a reinforcement of the gospel to compel holiness and transformation. A reinforcement of the gospel to help grow them in their discernment and their confidence in the truth of the gospel. What he wants is to reinforce their assurance, their security in who God is and what he has done for them in his son, Jesus. He's a good pastor who wants to cultivate the soul of his people. He wants to increase maturity and holiness, discernment, and assurance. That's what we want for each other. That's what we want for you. But he's got a fourth reason why he wrote this letter. It's in the first four verses. If you've got it open, chapter one, let's go backwards. The fourth reason John says he's writing this letter, it's where we'll kind of camp this morning. Chapter one, verse four. He says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Your Bibles, depending on the translation you have, it may actually say so that your joy may be full. This is what John wants for his church and ultimately for God, inspiring him to write the letter and preserving the letter in the scriptures. It's what God wants for this church. He wants his people as followers of his son to have fullness of joy. That's what he wants for his people. That's what God wants for his people. He wants you to have fullness of joy. Of joy. In fact, some of your Bibles will translate it, and it's a really actually a very good translation. It will say, We're writing these things so that your joy remains full. Not that you hope that it will attain fullness, not that you hope that one day it will be full, but that it is full and that it remains full. It doesn't leak, it doesn't drip. It's secure and full and overflowing. This is what John wants for God's people. An overflowing and abiding joy. Joy is a huge mega theme of the scriptures. Old Testament to New Testament, if we had the time to trace joy from the Old Testament through the New Testament, you'd see that one of God's intents for his people is a full and abiding and overflowing, secure, unconditional joy. It's clear in the New Testament. It's even more clear in the teachings of Jesus. In the last night he had with his disciples, when he prepared himself and he prepared them for his going to the cross, for him suffering for their sins. He spoke to them and taught them about his love for them, the need for them to continue to abide in him and in his teaching. In John chapter 15, so John who wrote this letter also wrote the gospel of John. So let's look at what Jesus said about this joy as John recorded it in the gospel of John. John chapter 15, let me just show you what Jesus thought about this. John chapter 15, verse 11, as he's preparing himself and his disciples for what's about to happen when he goes to the cross, Jesus said this, these things I have spoken to you, here's why, that my joy may be in you. This is what Jesus wants for his people, his joy, Jesus's joy, for the joy set before him, Paul talked about, he went on to endure what he endured on the cross. Jesus said before he went, he wants his joy that same joy to be in his people and that your joy wouldn't just be present, that his joy wouldn't just be present in you, John said, but that your joy may be full. 
And he kept on teaching them, and they began to ask him some questions. Chapter 16 of John, verse 19, Jesus continued on. He said this, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, in a little while, you will not see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So when he goes to the cross, his followers are going to weep. They're going to lament. He said, you're going to mourn. You're going to be sad. And the world around you, they're going to rejoice for what they think is actually happening. He said, you'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Give a great illustration, verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Why? For joy that a human being has been born into this world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And listen to what he says about this joy. Listen to what he says about this joy. His joy that he wants in his people. No one, no one will be able to take your joy from you. This joy that Jesus intends for his people to have that John is talking about in writing this letter is a joy that is not to be taken away from God's people. It's not a conditional joy. It's not a joy whose foundation is built upon the circumstances of life. It's a joy that is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ himself. And what Jesus said to his people, John, who was sitting there listening to Jesus, and what John is now taking from Jesus and saying to this church is what you need and what Jesus has given you is a full and abiding and lasting joy. This is what he went to the cross and sacrificed himself in your place for your sin for, so that those who could trust in him and who would trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins would experience his joy. That Jesus' joy would be present in you. A joy that would remain full, would be overflowing, was not conditioned by your circumstances, but was conditioned by the person and work of Jesus Christ himself and can never be taken. This is what Jesus wants for his church. If you were to read it through the entire Bible, you would see that what God wants for his people is for us to be gluttons of joy. To desire a deep and abiding joy in all things, at all times, in all circumstances, that is not rooted on what's going on around us, but in Jesus himself. This is what God has for his people. And to make sure that this church understands what he's talking about, John is going to make sure that they understand who Jesus really is. The third reason why we're going to take time to look at the book of 1 John not just because it's scripture and not just because it's deeply pastoral and aims to help protect us and mature us, but because 1 John is all about Jesus. This letter is all about Jesus. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 1. Just look at what John says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Now in Greek, this is a grammatical mess. These three verses are one sentence. Object first, subject last, 
verbs sprinkled all throughout the whole thing. But this is actually a common rhetorical strategy in John's day. When they were trying to to communicate the truthfulness of a statement or of an argument, to say that a testimony or or a, a statement or an experience was inscrutable, they would stack statements, objective statements on top of each other, and then lead into the subject of what they're talking about. But it makes for a mess in trying to translate and understand. And so some of you may have a, a version of your Bible called the New Living Translation. I love the New Living Translation of the Bible, especially for teaching. This is how they translate those verses, and they help us understand what John is actually saying. It says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes, and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we've seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard. The message of 1 John is Jesus. And Jesus is the message that John is trying to communicate. John is after your joy. And Jesus is the source and foundation of that joy. That's why we love Jesus and we preach about Jesus and we serve Jesus and we adore Jesus and we follow Jesus. And if you talk to us, our whole goal in life is to spend eternity with Jesus, whom John says here is eternal life. We're about Jesus and Jesus is the source of joy that John is trying to compel his people towards. Let me say this. It's a simple question. Who better to teach you about Jesus than John? I mean, who better to teach you about Jesus than John? I mean, the Gospels, the, the, the four books that kind of record the biography of the life and ministry of Jesus, all record that John was Jesus' closest friend. That of all the 12 disciples that were with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry, John was the beloved disciple. He was Jesus' closest friend, the one whom Jesus loved. When Jesus was on the cross, suffering in our place for our sin, he looked down, he saw his mother. I can't even even begin to imagine what that was like. I mean, forget stopping to think about that. But he looks down and sees his mother. And who does he see standing next to her? His best friend. And he looks at John and he says, when I'm gone, I want you to look after her. He entrusted the care of his own mother to John. Is there a a testimony of the person and truthfulness and validity of Jesus Christ that's more credible than John? I mean, is there a testimony more credible than his best friend, than an eyewitness? I mean, you're going to have to decide for yourself who you're going to listen to when it comes to information about Jesus. Who are you going to trust when it comes to information about Jesus. You're going to have to ask yourself an answer for yourself. Is there anyone more credible than an eyewitness? And of eyewitnesses, is there anyone more credible than his best friend? I mean, honestly, when you just think about it, I've, I, I've been there, I, I'm there often. The books that are written about Jesus... The scholarly books that are written to debunk the reality of the person and work of Jesus. 
Friends who want ideas and conjecture in the place of truthfulness about Jesus. We're thousands of years removed from the person and work of Jesus. John was his best friend. You have to decide who you're going to trust. There were people in this church who had confessed faith in the person and work of Jesus, but who now have turned, who have left the church and were seeking to convince those in the church that the message about Jesus wasn't true. They never even met him. They never met Jesus. They only heard about Jesus. John says, look, I I was with him. I touched him. I was his best friend. Everything he said, I heard. Everything he did, I saw. These over here who are telling you that he's not true, they never met him. They don't know him. And you're going to have to decide who you're going to listen to. Will it be an eyewitness? Jesus' own best friend, or will it be someone who's written a book thousands of years removed? There was no eyewitness testimony, just conjecture and disagreement. John saw it all. All the miracles, even the ones that weren't recorded in Scripture. Because if they were to write everything he said that Jesus did, it would fill up books. John saw it all. Even the greatest of the miracles. Who was the first man in the tomb after Jesus was raised from the dead? It's not your question. John. John and Peter raced to the tomb and John beat him. I was telling the first service, I, I say it around here kind of often, I hope in heaven there is some way that God will allow us to see all that happened in the Bible. We'll be able to see it like a movie. Actually, be able to see what took place and like we're there just to kind of know and to feel. I would love to see Peter's reaction when John beat him to the tomb. I mean, just that's a sidebar for you. But I, I just, I can imagine Peter's reaction running to see Jesus raised from the dead, thinking he's going to get there and he gets there and John's there, the one that Jesus loved, his best friend. John was there. He touched the risen Jesus. He hugged his best friend. You're going to have to decide who you're going to trust. And who can you trust to tell you the truth about Jesus, who is eternal life, more than John? John, who he wrote this at the age, some say, of 90, maybe a little bit older. He has nothing to gain from writing this letter, convincing people about the person and work of Jesus. The rest of the disciples, the rest of the 12, they've been martyred at this point. Some crucified upside down, others beheaded. In an effort to silence John, do you know what's already happened to John at this point? They boiled him alive. And after that didn't kill him, they exiled him to the island of Patmos, an island that was near modern day, in modern day Greece that they used as an exile, as a prison. And it was there that John actually received the vision from God that we have in the book of Revelation. And after they'd exiled him to Patmos and that didn't kill him, he returned back to Ephesus, the place where he spent the majority of the rest of his years pastoring the local churches, probably the church to whom he wrote this letter. John is a a man who has simply been transformed by Jesus, who heard Jesus, who met Jesus, who knew Jesus, who loves Jesus, who can't stop talking about Jesus because he knows what it is to have been loved by Jesus. And because of this, he is full of joy. Exile, torture, ridicule, 
instability in the life around him doesn't matter. His joy is secure because he knows what it is to be loved by Jesus. And this is what he wants for God's people. A real and abiding, overflowing, eternal joy. He says, I've seen him. I've heard him. I've touched him. I've hugged him. He is eternal life. And he is the source and foundation of your joy. And that joy is rooted in him and is experienced often in the relationships that he has established. This is what John goes on to say. Look at verse three. Here's the fruit of that joy being rooted in Jesus. That which we have seen and heard, so he's talking about Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, Jesus that I've seen, Jesus that I've heard, Jesus that I've touched, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. So proclaiming the message about Jesus, the the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done is meant to produce in God's people what the Bible says here is fellowship. And what I, I want you to understand this morning about this idea and about this fruit is that this is a word that we throw around often, but it's very often in our common usage not the same thing that the Bible talks about. Fellowship to us is generally chips and dip and conversation and time together with God's people talking about whatever it is that we can come up with to talk about. And we had good fellowship together, right? Don't import that idea when you read this word. That is not what the Bible is talking about here. This particular word fellowship is the, is the word koinonia. It's a particular word that's used throughout the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, when it talks about those who had heard the gospel and been transformed by the gospel and how the early church began to gather together and devoted themselves to one another. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers, and they had everything in common. That devoted themselves to one another and that everything in common are from the same word koinonia. There's a deep and abiding relationship, a a unity and a a connection that that goes beyond the things that normally bring us together, like like the things that we're interested in or or those ancillary um, um, hobbies, those common affinities that tend to unite us and we try to build relationship on. This idea of fellowship goes way beyond that. In the book of Philippians, the, the Apostle Paul uses this word four or five times. He uses this word koinonia. And we don't actually see that word. It doesn't actually say fellowship. But if you go back and look at the word, you you find this word. And when Paul uses it, he says that we have koinonia together. And he was talking about this. Here's what it says in Philippians. He says that we're partakers of the same grace. We're participants in the spirit. That we share in the sufferings of Christ. And he was encouraging this church in Philippi that they had shared in his trouble and had partnered with him in his mission. And in all five of those instances, he used this word koinonia. This fellowship, this deep and abiding relationship that transcends affinity, transcends similarities of things that we're like and we're interested in, is united by God's grace. It's found in God's spirit. It's connected and experiences the sufferings of Christ. And together, the relationship has a common purpose and a common mission. 
This is what John is talking about is produced through the proclamation of the gospel, through the transformation of the person and work of Jesus. And what it's saying, if I can boil it all down for you, is that fellowship as the Bible talks about it is something that can only be experienced by the followers of Christ. It can only be experienced by followers of Christ. Fellowship is not open for everybody because it's produced from the work of Jesus. It's united by the grace received from Jesus. It's found present in the spirit of God himself. This thing transcends the ideas that we tend to have when we talk about fellowship. This is a deep and abiding relationship that's produced from a commonality and that commonality isn't our favorite football team or our neighborhood. It's from banking our hope and our life on the person and work of Jesus. But John ratchets this whole idea up a notch. I mean, if we get that and we can tend to gravitate towards that and get our heads around that, John's going to ratchet it up one more notch. He's going to keep on going. Listen to what he says. He says, indeed, our, our fellowship, our koinonia, this deep and abiding relationship that comes from the proclamation of Jesus, it's not just with one another. It's with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. See, when God calls us together as his people to experience this koinonia, this fellowship, this deep and abiding devotion to one another, received by his grace, found in his spirit, for his purpose, this fellowship, what we are being invited to experience is the same fellowship that God has with himself in the Godhead. For all of eternity, God has been satisfied in the presence of the Father, Son, and Spirit, fully satisfied within himself. There's a relationship that has existed for all of eternity in God himself. And he says that for followers of Christ, this koinonia, this fellowship that you can have with one another because of who Jesus is and what he has done, when you have that, you are experiencing, I'm inviting you into, I am giving you the same grace to experience what I have within myself. That's what fellowship is. That's why when we use this word too loosely and we talk about fellowship with each other around the game, we're we're, we're a little bit missing the point. When you think about community and we talk a lot about community around here and being a part of community and experiencing community that's centered on the gospel and driven by God's grace and focused on God's person, we're talking about his koinonia. And when you reject community because you think you're rejecting a program, You're actually rejecting the grace of God for his people to experience this type of relationship together. A grace that he secured through the sacrifice of his own son. And he offers to his people that they might have deep and abiding joy. You're not just bypassing a program you think you're too busy or too different to be a part of. You're setting aside the grace that God has offered you to experience through what he's accomplished by his son. This is what God wants for his people. This is what John is directing the eyes of his people towards. And it can only come, and it can only happen for followers of Christ. You see, sin has created this wedge of of separation in our lives. It's, It's dug into our lives, and it's wedged out this gap and this separation that exists now between us and God. And the Bible actually says we're enemies of God. 
That there's a separation between us and God. And not only has sin separated us from God, but sin has wedged its way into our life and now separates us from one another. That the relationship, the, the koinonia that God desired and designed for his people to have with him and with one another is now not possible because sin has now separated us from each other. And through anger and bitterness and hostility and betrayal and, and mistrust, we can't experience this type of relationship and fellowship with one another. Sin has created this distance. And no matter how hard we try, how many books we write, how many conferences we put on, how many talk shows we have, no matter how hard we try to come up with ways to close the gap on this separation, to close the gap on this hostility that separates us from God and separates us from one another, we can never fix it. We can't close that gap completely and restore the fellowship that God had intended for us to have with him and with others for all of eternity. We can't come up with it. But God devised a way. And God made a way. And his solution to that hostility that separates us from him and separates us from one another was his son, was Jesus And Jesus came and he lived on this earth as a man and he lived in our place, the life that we were designed by God and intended by God to live without sin. And then he laid his life down on a cross and died in our place for our sin, for the life that we live instead. And on that cross, God exhausted his just just wrath on his son for our sin. And God closed the gap. God removed that hostility that divided us from him and separated us from him and and separated us from one another so that those who place their faith and their hope in the person and work of Jesus can receive the forgiveness of sin and can be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another and actually experience koinonia, this deep and abiding fellowship in which we can taste the fullness, fullness of joy. This was God's solution to the problem. Koinonia, this relationship, it's not possible apart from Jesus. It's not possible apart from Jesus. And John said, we proclaim him clearly to you that you might believe, that you might know, that you might place your hope and your faith in him, who he is and what he has done. And in that, you can experience that relationship with us And our relationship is with him. And our relationship, our fellowship is with him. And we're writing these things, he said in verse four. All of that, the majesty of that. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So that your joy may remain full. The proclamation of the gospel. What they have seen and heard and proclaimed, John said, establishes this relationship that we now have. And it's in this relationship that our joy is rooted. The fullness of joy that we're meant to have is rooted not in the shallow soil of the circumstances of our life. The, the roots of our joy don't go as deep as the circumstances that we face on a day in and day out basis. The roots of our joy run deep into the fullness of the Godhead itself. This faith in the person and work of Jesus 
produces a relationship that is secure and abiding between us and between God. And that is the taproot or the source of this abiding and eternal joy. And this is what John wants his people and he wants us to understand and he wants us to experience and he wants us to be changed by. This is a joy that is not conditional. It's not based on your life and how well things around you are going. It is secured by the person and work of Jesus. And John says, I've seen him. I've heard him. I know him. I have touched him. I've examined the truthfulness of him when he, raised, when he was raised from the dead. And he is eternal life. He is alive. He is well. He has conquered Satan, sin, and death. And the questions that remain for us this morning go along this vein. If you are here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, my question for you this morning is what would actually prevent you from receiving Jesus, from placing your faith in the person and work of Jesus and experiencing the fullness of this joy? What would prevent you from giving yourself to Jesus and experiencing the fellowship, the koinonia, koinonia that he has established for us, between us and him? I mean, for a lot of you, as I've talked to different people, generally the response is, my sins are just too many. My sin is just too great. I'm just too dark. And what John proclaims and what the scripture has proclaimed is that Jesus Christ has died for sin. And he has exhausted in his flesh on that cross God's just penalty for all sin. And as deep and as dark as you think your sin is, his love is that much greater and that much brighter. And if you would ask any of us who would say that we have tasted of his grace and of his goodness and of his joy, every single one of us should be able to testify to the truthfulness of that. Your sins are not too great for God's grace. There's honestly, I was thinking about it in the first service, there's honestly no reason that anyone should walk away from this place today not having given, them, given themselves to Jesus. It's not a complicated thing to do. It's as simple as giving him your hope and your faith. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, here are my sins. Thank you for your death and your resurrection. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that I can now know a real and abiding relationship with you and the fullness of joy because of who you are and what you have done. And you can thank him for his grace that he's shown out, shown for you. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for being alive and for being well. Thank you that you love me. Receive your forgiveness and your reconciliation. It's as simple as that in a heartfelt way. There's no reason. There's no reason why anyone should walk out of here having not given themselves to Jesus. If you feel like you need to listen to other things and other people about Jesus, just ask yourself, who's more trustworthy? Who's more trustworthy to tell you about Jesus than his best friend? Who can tell you more about who he is and what he's done than the man who spent his life in ministry with him and who was his best friend?
For those of you that are here this morning and you are followers of Christ, you're, you're, you're Christians, you have placed your hope and your faith in the person and work of Jesus. Th- these are the questions I've got for you. When was the last time that it hit you, like tangibly hit you, that Jesus saved you from your sin? I mean, when was the last time it tangibly hit you that your sin was so dark that it cost God his son, that he saved you and rescued you from your sin? When was the last time it hit you? When was the last time that you were stunned, maybe even moved to tears, that God decided to show his grace to you? that he actually decided to love you and transform you. When, when was the last time that you can put your finger on? And you should be able to put your finger on this. When was the last time you can put your finger on when the grace of God, the joy that you have because of your salvation, compelled you to change something about your life? Not when a pastor or a book or a preacher or a list or something else told you to stop doing something and do something else and so you did it. When was the last time the sheer joy of your salvation, the sheer grace that's been shown to you through Jesus compelled you to change something in your life? When was the last time there was grace-driven change in you? I think for many of us, for a lot of us, our, our response to what John is trying to direct our eyes to and what God has promised and given to us through his son, this fullness of joy. I think our response to this message for a lot of us needs to be along the lines of Psalm fifty-one, twelve. We just need to pray like David did. God, restore to me the joy of my salvation and make me willing to obey you. For a lot of us, you need your joy restored. You've lost track of the security of this joy. And you've begun to think your joy is conditional by the world around you. You need to ask God to restore to you the joy of your salvation. That he would make your heart desirous to obey. John's going there. We're going to get there. He's going to talk about how God's grace compels transformation in our life. And he's going to give you some things to look at and examine your life by. I'm very excited about that. But this morning, we need to start by just giving ourselves to him. Some of you, maybe for the first time. Others, maybe for the first time in a very long time. And we need to ask God to restore to us that which is rightfully ours, that he secured for us through his son. As you do that, as you give Jesus your sin and you receive from Jesus his forgiveness and righteousness and reconciliation, maybe for the first time, Or as those of you who are followers of Christ pray and say, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I have forgotten that it was grounded in you. Please forgive me of that. As you confess your sin, as you repent to God and receive his forgiveness, that's actually how we prepare ourselves to do what we're about to do in a few minutes when we take communion, remembering Jesus' body and his blood. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have about two minutes to just allow you to deal with Jesus. Allow Jesus to deal with you. For some of you, there are some prayers on the, on the worship guide that can kind of help direct you. For others, you just need to talk to Jesus honestly. It's not complicated. There are particular words you've got to say. You just need to deal with him. And I promise you, as you do, in a heartfelt way, he'll, he'll deal with you. 
So let me pray for us and, and, and trust God to do what only he can do in this time and, and then we'll move on. God, I ask that uh, in, in the very short and brief time that we've actually had together to, to look at your word, um, that each of us would surrender ourselves to your word and that we would listen to the words of this good pastor, John, who knew you, who loved you, who you loved, that we would listen to his words. And I pray, Lord, that each and every single one of us would begin to know in a deeper measure by faith what John knew by sight, what he saw with his eyes, what he heard with his ears, what he touched with his hands, what he embraced with his body, that we would know you by faith, though he got to know you by sight. May we know you to be true and trustworthy. And Jesus, I would ask that your spirit would do the work to compel each and every single one of us to place all of our hope, to bank all of our eternity on you and that we would find nothing and no one more satisfying and more trustworthy than you. We ask these things for your glory and our joy. Amen.